Hello and, and welcome. welcome. Hey! No, we didn't like synchronize. That was very cool. Welcome to Plants and Pipettes. Um, we're a podcast. We talk about plants and particularly about plant molecular biology generally. Um, yeah. Yeah. We're here every week. I'm Tegan. Hi, I'm Joram. And I felt super fancy at the start of the session because I had like a mini bottle of tonic and a mini bottle of gin. And it was yeah. like I was on an airplane which doesn't happen these days. And like, I was a first class passenger on an airplane, which never happens in my lifetime because I'm not that fancy. Um, but now I've drunk all my gin and it's a little bit sad, honestly. Yeah. But- yeah. But have you seen the videos of the people pretending to like to have the airplane, uh, airplane experience at home? They, they had like, like a chair over their head or something, right? No, they were like sitting in front of the washing machine. So they had like the window thing and they had like an iPad be- in behind the closed washing machine door with like some sky video. So they could like sit there. Then they had like a tray cl- down and were eating like something with cheap cutlery um, and pretending See? the airplane experience. Humans adapt well to ca- captivity. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. done. well done, people. <laughs> Although, like, if I wanted to simulate an experience, I don't think airplanes would be my go-to experience that I want to have at home. There's also, like, I don't, like, that part of the airplane, like, sitting on a seat for a long time, watching a crappy film, like, being, like, quite close to people. It's not ideal, but it's not the worst thing for me. Like, there's that that air smell and the feel of it. Like, this is what causes me anxiety, just this, like, mm-hmm. and, like, the the food smell. I think like when I was, I, I went on a plane first when I was quite young, like five or six. And that first ride was like super turbulent. And I don't know if they were serving food when there was turbulence, but somehow the, the airplane's food smell were now like links to like wanting to, vo- um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> ah, smell. Anyway, like, the most yeah. powerful of the, what is it? The memory sensing remindy thingies. What's yeah. the... Yeah, um, no, but I, I would rather mimic other experiences. Like, I like to cook fancy and pretend to be at a fancy restaurant. Um, although, like, I don't really have the time to cook proper fancy. But, like, put in 10% more effort in the cooking and then pretend and, like, put it nicely on the plates and then pretend, like, you're at a place where somebody did this for you instead of you just did it for the last 45 minutes. Um, that's my sort of at-home escape routine to have some feeling of, of of activity of something that's not just the same thing over I'm and over again. I'm trying to think again. of what my equivalent is and the best I can come up with is like it's been raining a lot. So I walk through a really deep puddle at the park and kind of pretend I'm in the pool. Like I really miss going to the public. Like, I don't know. I have no... Oh yeah, I miss that so much. I miss I, the public. I want to go swimming again. That's kind of my, my thing yeah. that I want to yeah. be doing. But <laughs> yeah, this is like the now depressing, what do you miss while in quarantine um, feelings. Uh, yeah, and I wish we would have more life hacks to to turn this into things how you can have that experience at home. But like going for a swim in your bathtub, if you have one, is not really the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, making friends with squirrels. Is that is that socializing? Is that what socializing <laughs> is now? <laughs> I feel like... I think it's pretty good. Um, I mean, it's something that can be useful later on as well to have squirrel friends and like a squirrel army. <laughs> the uh, other day, I saw a lady in the park and I smiled at her and I was wearing a mask so she didn't know, but I felt like I made a friend. Is that <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> do you do that, the crazy thing now of like overemphasizing the smile in your eyes because you can't see the mouth? Like I know that sometimes I must look like a deranged person. When I mean, I'm no, smiling. but like I have naturally expressive eyes, so I just assume everybody can. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, probably. I think 
I use more hand gestures maybe. Um, I feel always awkward. I, yeah, I, I'm not sure that people can understand me. And especially like you have the mask on and you've just taken one ear pod out for like to, to make an order of a coffee or something. And like, yeah, there's kind of that you're like, I think you're looking more intensely at their face to see if they are, are inter like, you know, there's more staring into our eyes deeply, which yeah. Always made me really uncomfortable. I remember we did those soft skill courses um, when I was doing my PhD, where part of it was like you had to look at somebody for a bit. Why did we do that? What was that about? I, I think it was like confidence building. I think it was like if you're standing Maybe. in front of an audience and looking at them and you know they're all looking at you, that you can stand that. The other thing from the exercise I remember, I think we did the same course. I don't know if you did it at the same time, but um, uh, I remember just accepting compliments is something that I <laughs> that I learned there because um yeah I've been told I'm very good at that. <laughs> yeah, I think you were always natural with this, but I for for a long time I I had no idea how to respond if somebody was like, "Hey, that was a great <laughs> talk." I'm just like, "Yeah, you like, too." And then like, "Oh no, you didn't give a talk. You just listen to me." So Yeah. Um uh, or or saying like, "Oh, it's nothing." Like, it was a very bad talk. No, now I say like, "Thank you." I appreciate that. And that was something I learned in this course of, of like being out there and being like giving presentations. Yaram, Yaram, you're very pretty today. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> See, that's actually, that's, I, if I'm just like, yes, that is correct. <laughs> is that also not right? a way of doing it. I mean. <laughs> and I know that you've been doing it like this. Like I've seen you do that in real life with people yes. who don't know you that well. You uh, have affirmed a thing that I already knew, and actually, I don't value your opinion that highly at all. But thank you for telling me anyway. Good day, sir. <laughs> Tell me something new next time. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> just like look them up and down and be like, "Do I value your expertise on this issue? <laughs> Can I see your credentials?" <laughs> no, I'm not that terrible. Um, no, usually you are maybe. Great. <laughs> so, yes, that's correct. Well done. <laughs> but you're not even a doctor yet, so do I trust your credentials? <laughs> Oh my god! I also be the, the the person who's just like horrific about asking for degrees and like, yeah, <laughs> for like minor count. like niceties during the day. It's like, have a nice day. Like, do I want you to tell me that I have a nice day? I don't know. Like, where did you publish last time? <laughs> I know, but that, I mean, the have a nice day is also not have a nice day. But there is this like weird like thing where it becomes a bit like creepy, right? Like, yeah. there's the like. <laughs> I mean, also with like unsolicited, <laughs> unsolicited comments on your looks. Like if you yeah. know, if you have a work colleague, you don't know them very well. And then they're like, oh, yeah, oh like you look very pretty today. Like and problematic. I have, this, you know, but I have stopped. Like I have responded to somebody complimenting my looks in the workplace by giving them like a 10, like a 10 minute TED talk about feminism and why they should like not talk about like what dress I'm wearing. And we're like, yes, you're correct. I am pretty, but now is not the time and place. Ah, <laughs> uh, this is why I have so many friends, you know. Uh, uh, uh. Let's talk about plants. Let's talk about plants today. It's the paper of the week. Okay, so Yoram, Yoram chose this week's paper, but actually it was a bit of a weird one because you sent me the link and you said we're doing this paper. And I was like, I opened it, read the title and was like, hang on. It's that spinach email paper, which a a nice man from Bumble had just sent me 
<laughs> earlier that day, which again, like if your Bumble interactions don't involve you getting either photos of cats or plant science information, you are doing Bumble wrong. And <laughs> like, there's a way to play Bumble where you complete and you get like, ding, ding, ding. Anyway. Um, Definitely an achievement. Yeah. I feel smug about it. And I think I can feel smug about that. But yeah, tell us what it is, Yoram. Yeah, it's a story um, that was ma- made the rounds now. Um, that's about, yeah, as you said, spinach sending emails. The actual paper <laughs> behind it is uh, nitro aromatic detection and infrared communication from wild type plants using plant nanobionics. And what that is, we will talk about in a in a minute. Um, but first of all, like first up, I want to um, express my uh, disappointment with certain kinds of science journalism. Um, about this story because the actual paper that we're talking about is for, from 2016 um, but this I didn't realize so I, I got this link like spinach can send emails now and I didn't realize that now was actually four years ago which okay so why yeah. we, <laughs> why now <laughs> yeah I, I, I don't know why it came up now but um, the people who wrote the report and put the context of spinach sending email in there. I don't know why they did that now, but um, they, yeah, so they they wrote this whole story about spinach now being able to sense chemicals and send us an email about it. And there was like one like delightful thing coming, coming off it, which I very much appreciated where somebody like made us, like I think they faked it, like their email inbox where they got a ton of email from like different ways of misspelled spinach um where they're like hello i'm a spinach on a field how do you do like i like to be green how are you um so i i enjoyed that very much but apart from that um the original story was just taking something that's not really in the paper and putting that in the headline and sort of at the forefront of the whole story when as we will go into it later like there's so much in this that's actually exciting and it's not the emails but um <laughs> They be like they. There will be a piece of analytical machinery that will, at one point, just send an email as a sort of report. And in the story that they that they presented, it sounds like as if the spinach itself is sending an email, and that's the main idea of it. Like as if the researchers set out to make spinach that can send emails. And so, like Yarm and I have already had this discussion that I. I have low expect when somebody tells me spinach is sending emails, I think I have slightly lower expectations than your arm does. Like, I mean, also when I send emails, I don't build the computer. I don't understand how the internet works. And half the time I send it to the wrong person. So like, I'm not really (laughs) convinced that me sending emails is really me sending emails either like i basically mash the keyboard like like a happy cat and then like (laughs) hope that i press like i've literally sent several emails accidentally where somehow i slipped and pressed the send button before i put any text in the email um so yeah again i'm not i'm not sure we should be overly critical of the spinach in this context um but i can see i can see your concerns yeah i mean the main thing is that like they Analytical machines have all kinds of ways to tell us about the results. And often for measurements that take a while, an option is that they will just send you an email when they're done. And then it's the machine sending you an email. And you will never, like, if you have a machine that measures how much DNA you have in your sample, 
and then in the end you send the report of the measurement by email you will not be like oh the dna just sent me an email about its concentration no you would never make that story um but in this case i mean this is quite this is a i mean that's kind of like your machine would be it's like a machine sending an email it's more expected than a living green thing sending an email like there's there's a layer of coolness there but can I just interrupt? Did you go to the site with like, so it's Euronews. Did you go to the site and kind of have a look around a little bit? No, actually, I have no idea what uh, what else they're writing about. Okay. I want to mention now, this is amazing. The top trending um, report, the most viewed um, news article on the site right now is um, it's got the category outdoor and it's called hanging rhinos upside down is vital in little like, um, what do you call those things? <laughs> like, quotation marks. Quotation is vital for their conservation. And it has an image of the sky with a rhino like floating upside down. And they've like, from the photo, they've cut out the bit where the rhino is like clearly attached to a helicopter. Um, I clicked on that. Like, yes, it's clickbait. Yes, I know that like this is not actual upside down hanging, but it's like moving the rhinos. Like, I can. I'm I'm not completely daft, but I absolutely clicked on that article and I had a look at what was going on there. Like, yeah, that's what I wanted to say as well. Like, I understand that they were clearly successful in spreading some message, but whether this is the right message, um, but I mean, but I've seen many people on Twitter like talk discussing the idea of spinach sending emails when that's clearly not what the researchers set out to do. And now here as well, like with the rhino story, I mean they. It looks pretty fantastic. It it almost looks like it's not suitable for work. It looks, looks a little bit kinky the way it's dangling there. But that's not <laughs> the did point. Not, like, I didn't go there. It says, like, sometimes rhinos need to be removed uh, from inaccessible wilderness areas by, alec- um, uh, areas by helicopter to bring them to safety. So that's the whole story where the helicoptering happens. Like, sometimes you have to move them by helicopter. It's uh, vital, Yoram, vital. It was in quotation marks. That's how we know it's true. Um, I also like that they've managed to get climate change into this um, title. So scientists have taught spinach to send emails and it could warn us about climate change. Like, I care about climate change. I want to know about climate change. But I don't think the original article is really discussing climate change, is it? Probably not. Um, but, yeah, you know, back back to the plant science and back to the actual paper, I, I, I would say. Um so we add our grievances about clickbaity science journalism and sort of the, the ripple effects of it. I No, I have no grievances. I think Yoram is being specious against spinach and he doesn't want them to have access to email. He's <laughs> trying to... I would be excited if spinach could actually, with like some sort of mechanism on its own, trigger an email. Like there's this, uh, this art installation where they put birds... Um, now I think it was like with musical instruments and like live feeds, but they have like a couple of instruments... And a, dozens of birds and they fly around and they make sort of music in there but it's literally the birds touching the instruments making the music maybe not with the intention of making music but it comes from them it's and it's not like somebody else looking at it or a machine looking at it and then playing notes and then yeah anyway it's 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 a meta discussion um i was just like annoyed that i saw more people talking about the the email from my part point of than view, the rest you're part. you're pretty much like you want to censor spinach that's what i'm hearing yeah, I want to cancel spinach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, also, the final point I have to say is that in the in this article, they have like a quote from the the author, and it's talking about how, 
like they've overcome the plant human communication barrier which I personally didn't know I had a communication barrier with plants so it's nice to know that but I definitely think that if I had clickbaited the article um then I would have like made it about talking to plants as opposed to emailing plants but yeah maybe it's just because I'm chatty who knows (laughs) <laughs> so what is the paper actually about? Um, um, if we look at the title, it's Nitro Aromatic Detection and Infrared Communication from Wild-Type Plants Using Plant Nanobionics. And so I think we should start with like what is actually nanobionics, because that sounds like something from a Michael Bay movie. Uh, and that's something I would like I knew much about before. Wait, you knew a lot about Michael Bay movies? No, not a lot. I... I no, not a lot. Not a lot. Uh, neither about Michael Bay mu- movies nor about nanobionics. Okay, so the bionics is basically kind of like roboty things, but like somehow linked to living organisms, right? So it's like living robots. That's the best. Is that is that good? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, I think there was no. I mean, that's another tangent. I I think there was like a Lego product line that was called Bionics or something. But, but I yeah, think to do, the, I mean, the, the, it's to do with the moving parts, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> but the nano just means it's very, very small. And in this um, case, they want to be in a range that's a similar size to things like proteins and protein complexes inside the cell. So like super tiny. And then ideally, if you get man-made, human-made, not man-made, man and woman-made <laughs> objects that are small enough, um, that in the size range, they can also just interact with those things in the cell so that's the ultimate aim okay so what what, <laughs> so what, what I, I like about, about this <laughs> <laughs> keep that in all right what what yarm likes about this paper is but um go what i like is that i mean this is published in nature materials so it's not a biology um paper necessarily but more on a physics side of things and engineering si- side of things and throughout the paper they look at plants from an engineering standpoint and i found that quite fascinating because that's a a point of view that i rarely experience when i read about plant science these days mm-hmm. um and so one of the things that they said that um an advantage of when, when they were talking about why actually deal with plants when you want to set up a um an engineering system is like, however, the engineering of naturally occurring wild type plants as microfluidic self-powered auto samplers of their surroundings has not yet been considered. So um, here they, they compare plants to being microfluidic. So moving very small volumes of liquid self-powered because they, you don't have to put in any external power. Um, I mean, technically mm-hmm. sunlight is external, but you don't have to put in any batteries and then auto samplers, like automatic, like something that's usually a very complicated device that like automatically takes a sample, like distributes it in like different vials and measures it. And in this case, it's the plant that does it themselves. Um, and uh, I found it a very interesting way to look at plants, a very like engineering mechanistic um, point of view, completely disregarding that it's a living thing with like an evolutionary history and all of the stuff that we plant biologists usually like to think about when you think about plants. Yeah, I found it quite jargony, and I'm not just I'm not certain if it's just because it's not my jargon, which is the whole problem with jargon, right? Like mm-hmm. for me, I was like, there's so many big words. Why is this necessary? And the reality is, like, I do exactly the same thing, but I'm familiar with our big words, and this is their big, like, their material big words. And yeah, as Yoram said, they're basically saying that plants grow and take up stuff from their environment, um, and they can take it from the air, so via like the 
like just through kind of the leaves themselves or through the air holes in the leaves, the stomata. They can, of course, take things up from the soil using um, their roots. This is a lot of the, the, the point of a plant is to like suck stuff up with its roots. Um, and then like these things can come from the roots and accumulate into the leaves, which becomes very important for this study itself. Um, one of the cool things you can do with plants using this ability to take stuff up from the earth is phytoremediation. So it's just using plants to kind of um, clean up areas of, of soil and earth. And I honestly, I think this is an extremely fascinating topic. Like it's, it's just super, super cool. Um, and in the paper, in the kind of the introduction, they reference a couple of previous attempts to do this. So one was using um, tobacco plants to suck up mercury from the soil. And in this case, it's really simple. The plants just take up mercury because I guess they don't know not to. They just take it up. I don't think they were even engine. Oh, they were genetically engineered. So they were maybe specially designed to take up extra mercury. And then once the mercury is in the plant, it's much easier to like pick up an entire tobacco plant and dispose of that than it is to like dig through all the soil and like i don't know presumably wash the soil grains i wouldn't how would that even work um so that's cool and then another reference they had was to again modified tobacco where if they found tnt which is dynamite um <laughs> in Did the you soil also have like the acdc song in your head Absolutely. the entire time you read tnt Absolutely. i mean how can you not um, so when they said when they find these tobacco plants find TNT, it's dynamite in the soil. Um, it triggers a response which has been like engineered into them, which makes the the leaves kind of turn pale, and that's a sign that there's TNT. It's dynamite. dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah. there are some problems with this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Usually, like from our point of view, I'm like as plant biologists when we think like we have a plan, we wanted to do something else, we would immediately turn to genetic engineering. And that's what I also mentioned in the paper, that this is sort of the classical approach, which is, in one hand, it's great, because if you once you modified your plant, it's very easy to make a lot of it. Um, well, I mean, it's it's not just, what was the word? Auto... Auto-sampling. It? It's not just auto-sampling, it's auto... It's like self-replicating. Yeah, auto-replicate, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's a big advantage of doing genetic engineering. But on the other hand, um, when once you do genetic modifications, depending on where you actually want to use your plants, you might not be allowed to do that. That's one problem. It's like legal framework of um, putting genetically engineered plant into the fields. Um, mm -hmm. And so just controlling your population that, that you don't have any escapes. That's a problem. Um, and then also that it's not always possible in all kinds of plant species. Um, like we work a lot with tobacco and Arabidopsis. So we are very good at modifying those. And we also like have a couple of crop plants that we're good at modifying. But it's still not always the right plan for the, for the job. Like if you have something where you want to sense for TNT in some sort of like dry environment your tobacco will probably not enjoy it too much. So you need to best, the best idea would be you take what's ever growing already there and then you modify it in some way that it can sense TNT. Yeah. Um, and then a different issue that the authors also um, suggested about the genetic modified crops is that often when you do that, you end up with a sort of visible response or some sort of output. But that output is usually contained within the plant itself. So as we mentioned with the tobacco, these ones that um, saw the TNT. <clears throat> 
That's dynamite, I think. Thank you. Um, they they had a physical, they had a visible response, which was to become less green. But that's only great if somebody then goes and looks at the leaves and is like, oh yeah, it's less green, and then like writes it down in a notepad, and then goes back and then like writes it in the computer and emails it to their friend. But what if the plant could email itself? That's the question. <laughs> um, Yaram hates me now. So <laughs> no. The authors thought that one thing they could do is to get that message to not be kept within the plant, but to have something where the, the message is sent out into the wild from the plant to the ether, which is, I is ether internet? Yeah, to the ether um, <laughs> where the internet exists and something, something Bluetooth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The idea, I think, is to have like a very clear readout, not just something that's like slowly getting paler, but something where you say, "Okay, it's like a very direct measurement of, of whatever you're measuring." It's it's dots and dashes and ones and zeros, and that's what we want in this modern world. Like that's the answer. I I literally said that, and Yaron walked away from his desk. No, I, I I had to let in the cat that was making a weird noise that was confusing me. <laughs> Um, okay, um, so the way they sent out this signal from the plant is to use carbon nanotubes. Yeah, and I think we're not going to pretend that we know exactly how they work. They're called like single-walled ca- uh, carbon nanotubes, so I guess they will be having a single wall and be very small, made from carbon in a tube And kind shape. of in a tube-like structure, I would guess. <laughs> Um, I think like material scientists will know much better what these things are doing and how you make them and, and so on. But f- I think f- for us, they're just like little particles that things can be attached to. Um, and what did they attach to them? Something where I was like, um, there was like a short ap- uh, section of the paper where it's like, this must be like, there must be some sort of in-joke here because they used bombolitin peptides. And I thought like they're sensing TNT, which is dynamite, which is in bombs. Um, and I th- is t- TNT actually dynamite? I don't know. But um, so it's in bombs. And then they use bombolitin peptides, but they're not named that because they're great at sensing um, bomb material. They're named after Bombus, um, Megabombus Pennsylvanicus, which is... Bumblebees! It's a bumblebee! <laughs> so it's a bumblebee peptide that they fuse to these nanotubes. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, like, anytime somebody talks to me about bumblebees, I'm gonna correct them and say it's a bumblebee from now on. <laughs> so much cuter. A it is. It is. <laughs> like, it's cute threatening. Um, Why? As, as if they would wear, like, tiny explosives with them um, because they're bumblebees now. But also very so cutely, cute. like 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 sm- the tiniest firecrackers going off. I, I think I'm going to have to request that you draw a bumblebee for this um for the podcast <laughs> yeah. episode, like a little bumblebee wearing headphones. That's a good that idea. That would be cute. All right, let's do some fun facts. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. And I have obnoxiously decided that all of my fun facts today are going to be surrounded by the concept of the color blue, double D, double die, um, because I want to. And it started because I found out about this mushroom. And, you know, before you write in, I realized that mushrooms are not plants. They're a completely different kingdom of life. But this is a really, really cool mushroom. It's called uh, Gyroporus cyanescens. 
And the clue is in that second name, the species name, Cyanescan. Guess what color these mushrooms are? Yellow. Scoff. <laughs> Um, so these mushrooms are cool because they're blue, but what's really cool about them is that they're not I blue. Mean, they're literally like, like I, I'm googling them. The first picture of them. Shut up. It's <laughs> yellow, and I didn't even know that before. Shut up. The cool thing about these blue mushrooms is they're not blue. When you look at them, they are indeed yellow. Congratulations, Yoram. You're a smart, <laughs> but this time you are correct. Um, and. That is because the chemical that makes them become blue, and they do become blue, that chemical only becomes blue when it's oxidized. Mm. So the mushrooms contain um, this thing that is called gyrocyanin, and it comes from like the shikimate pathway, so an important um, metabolic pathway um, for synthesizing amino acids. But gyrocyanin, Cyanin gets oxidized, so it has this interaction with the air, with oxygen in the air, and then it turns into a slightly different compound, which is called cyclopentanone, mm -hmm. um, and that is blue. And it's really, really cool. You should definitely check out the Wikipedia because you can actually see where people have like cut into the flesh of the mushroom and just those parts where they've cut and then these kind of diffusion areas around the cuts turn blue. And it's really, you can see how the oxygen has entered into these cells after like the, the mushrooms have been developed. So yeah, I think it's it's super amazing. It's it's very beautiful. It's It's cool, but also like the... At the at the molecular level, this idea of like the chemical itself has to be oxidized to get the color. It's really yeah, it's really fascinating. And to to be a little bit of a organic chemistry nerd, usually in nature when we see blue, we see like copper ions. That's usually what's giving blue color. Like a lot of the also like traditional d dyes for blue were copper based, which can be problematic because it's like a heavy metal iron and that can mess up our own biology. So it can be quite toxic. But this, at least from what I see from the structure. This doesn't contain any copper and is still like very, very blue, which to my knowledge is is also quite rare in biology. So that's that's I mean, blue color is um yeah, something special in nature. So it's really cool. I mean the molecule has those kind of um ringy structures that you see in <laughs> I mean <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. It's been a long time since I did organic chemistry, to be honest, guys. Yeah. Um yeah. but yeah. But no, cool. no heavy metal ions. Really cool, cool mushroom. I mean, in plants, blue colors don't have heavy metal ions in them. But they are often not like proper like blue colors that we can use for dyeing stuff and and so on. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Yeah, they're blueberries like blueberries and so on. They don't have have have. No, heavy people, metal you're gonna ions. like you're gonna like sink the blueberry market. Like people are gonna stop buying blueberries because they think <laughs> that they're gonna get like copper poisoning that's not no, that's not no, what's happening here no you're right i mean there's definitely a couple of like pigments that are very blue like if you think of pansies for example they can be very bright blue and they don't have copper ions in there um, i mean usually I it's like it's these anthocyanins right which is like yeah. these purpley purpley blue colors um and i mean everybody thinks those like those are supposed to be good for you because um they're antioxidant right yeah so that's the idea but, I mean, like, yeah, it's a very it, important point. To blueberry, me. blueberries are fine. Like you're going to be fine, guys. <laughs> Eat the blueberry. Yeah, I think I, I thought too much of a technical point of view. I I once read that like 
dyeing like garments blue was like a major struggle for forever until we had like synthetic blue dyes because before like all of the sort of stable blue dyes they um were very toxic uh, what's that dyeing dyeing garments blue you say would that be using the plant uh strobilanthus quisia <laughs> Which is also indigo, which is a second blue fact about plants. Actually, this one is actually about plants that I've brought to you today. And that is that the Plant Journal published the genome of indigo at the end of last year, in September last year. So they now have the... Um, yeah, so it's it, dun, 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 dun. it's an Acathansiae, which is a family. Um, but it's a this plant that has been used for thousands of years across many countries in the world to extract indigo because, as Yoram said, blue is not very common and thus highly valuable. We we always like what we can't have. Um, and they they sequenced the genome, but they also did matching like transcriptomics and metabolo- metabolomics to understand how the the transcripts of the genes that are involved in making these colored dyes um, are sort of regulated and also to understand how the metabolites, the dyes themselves, um, which in this case it's called indican, indigo and indirubin, so to understand how they accumulate in different parts of the plants. So yeah, that came out um, yeah September last year by Zhu et al. in the Plant Journal. And... Uh, because you mentioned like sequencing genomes and figuring out what's going on, I have something also that I found about the world's uh, world's fastest growing plant, um, which is actually like maybe you should know it. It has your country, like your home country's name in its Latin name, Wolfia australiana, um, and it's like a small. It's tiny, right? It's one yeah. of the smallest flowering plants. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a flowering plant, um, but it doesn't have any roots and so on. It lives in the water. It looks like little like pigments like as if you would like shred up a, a, a plant leaf and the remains um, would look like this but these are all like fully formed plants um, and they now sequenced the genome and also looked at what's going on with the genes there what, what what's happening with this plant because it's it's tiny but it's so fast gr- growing that it has a doubling time of sometimes only a day which is insane for for plants. There's very few plants that grow that fast. Um, you also know it like relatives of it are things like duckweed, for example, that you find in ponds, where you also can have like these overgrowth. So maybe people like know that from from that that some small bodies of water can literally be overgrown with this with duckweed um, because they are related to to Wolfia australiana. It's like very fast growing plant. And what they found is that it. Got rid of uh, got rid of a lot of genes. Um, for example, like root growth, which is not a big surprise. This thing doesn't have roots, but also like defense genes. It seemed to have thrown everything away, away that it doesn't need to immediately start growing at full speed. Um, so they say this plant has shed most of its genes that it doesn't need. It seems to have evolved to focus only on uncontrolled fast growth. Is um, this is a statement from Professor Michael, who uh, was part of the of the research. Um, and so, yeah, it's like this little turbocharged um, plants. That's so cool. Yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, this is this is one of the things. Like, there's this trade-off between growing fast and being able to protect yourself. So, having like prevent uh, pr- making defense molecules or making like spiky trike, like little spikes on your leaves that stop things from eating you. Like, this is a very well understood trade-off 
in in any organism's growth. So he's just decided to not bother. Yeah, it's just like leave me in peace with all of that stuff. Like I'm just gonna go full speed. Um, I will like if a couple of me die, doesn't matter. I will grow fast. Like I will regrow faster than they can eat me. Um, so yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, we did we did wolf here as a favorite plant um, about this time last year, actually, in one of our older episodes. But yeah, this is super cool new information about how it does what it does. Yeah, it's, I, that was my last plant fact for the day and my only plant fact for the day. Um, <laughs> I have another thing that um, a listener of ours, uh, Al, pointed me towards um, on Twitter and they sent me a link um, to an article that's called Review with Care by Adriana El Romero Olivares. Uh, and it's a very interesting um, tale of the, the struggles that non-native speakers might have when, um, when submitting... Uh, their articles to journals and then they go to through peer review and then they get a lot of comments that are not about the science but about the language um, that they write um, and they get problematic comments like uh, you should give this to a native speaker to correct um, i can't understand what you're writing because your english is so bad and lots of things like that um, and this article has three uh, points that they ask um, reviewers to to take care uh, like to think about when reviewing um, papers um, they also made the experience that when they were sub the author, when they were submitting from from a Mexican research institute, they would get these comments, and then they later moved during their career and were working in a United uh, U.S. American research institute, and then they didn't get the comments about the language anymore. Um, and mm -hmm. that's also what the first um, sort of suggestion ties into. It's like. Do not make assumptions about the quality of, uh, of a paper based on the author's names and affiliations. Um, this form of bias is rooted in racism, which is, yeah, uh, very problematic if people see like, oh, this is not from an English-speaking country. So they, some people have in mind then, oh, then the English can't be good. And then they focus on that. And then they even might find some issues that you also would find in papers written by other people then second um, you are a reviewer not an editor focus on the research if the english is so poor you cannot review the paper or provide feedback on the science tell the editor so that they can decide how to proceed which is i think another important point that like there's a certain type of people who then get hung up on the language and they completely ignore everything around it um, mm -hmm. and ignore the science and don't comment on the science and just like be oh like you don't know how to set proper Oxford commas, so how can I understand your science? Um, and third, if the paper is not written in sound English, it is okay to correct grammatical errors and help improve the, the writing. But remember that you are not a martyr to, or savior of people who did not grow up speaking English. Be kind. Um, and then she goes on with like some things you can write. And yeah, I found that very, very interesting to read. Um, I mean, I didn't write and submit that many papers that I personally ran into the issue, but I know from sort of secondhand experience from people who were giving talks and so on, um, when their their English language skills were, yeah, not the same one as somebody who spoke the language their entire life um, or is like very professional in the language, then this was taken as a measurement of their skill in science, which it is mm. absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, so I found it a very interesting article to to read, um, and I think it's also an important article to share. It's also something where I find it like a legitimately difficult problem to know where to solve it. Right? Like at which stage? Who is responsible for fixing the English? Um, because like 
yeah, like you don't want to say you can't submit your paper to be reviewed, but to be like assessed by an editor before the English is perfect. Like that's horrible. You, we don't want to give an advantage to somebody who has English as a native language or English as a second language with different like advantages and, and opportunities. Like, but yeah, it's not the reviewer's job. It's also not the editor's job to rewrite the whole thing into a different like. This is something that we haven't dealt with very well yeah. in science, I would say. Um, and that's also really apparent in the way we do conferences as well. Like the, it's usually everything is English and this gives people an advantage. And I don't think we deal, we haven't got, we haven't worked out how to deal with that properly, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big barrier, but to me, a lot of the problem comes from people confounding language skills with scientific skills. Um, People, when when they see a talk by somebody who has like who's not as fluent in their language and then from that they think oh the science is not as science is not as sound because they make yeah, grammatical I, I think, mistakes so i think that's a bias that we can be aware of but i think that's something that it will be very hard for people to actually overcome like i mean it is one of these like inbuilt biases where we can't help but being charm be charmed mm-hmm. so i don't know yeah i don't know i think the main message to me from this is like as a reviewer you have to be kind like there Mm -hmm. might be issues and like try to focus on the science you can maybe make a comment of like i would suggest like uh, an an additional round of proofreading by a professional um uh by somebody like a full professional uh full professional proficiency in english or someone with full professional proficiency in English, um, because they also say in the article, like, don't de- demand a native English speaker, because you then, like, there are some people who are native English speakers who are language skills are not as good as non-native English speakers. So yeah, absolutely. this also brings in, like, this weird idea of only if you are born and grow uh, in, a, in a certain place, you can speak the language properly. No, but, um, so, yeah, be kind. It's interesting. Um, I also got sent a couple of articles this week about like kind of the the issue of academia and rejection and the reviewing process. So there was one that was from the conversation um, that's called Journal Papers, Grants, Jobs. As rejections piles up, it's not enough to tell academics to suck it up. And if you guys are in the academic system, you might want to read this. I actually found it a little bit... I wasn't sure how to respond to this because they talk about how there's a very high rate of rejection, for example, from some papers. But then later on, they say that, you know, if you're going to get rejected, it's better to get rejected faster. So editors should just like send less stuff out to review. But that's just making the reject. That's like, (laughs) I don't know that that's really how I mean. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it just increases the number of rejections you get. Yeah, I, I mean, ultimately you get the same amount of rejections and it, it is, but like yeah. they said they should send out less, but then they should say the author should get feedback on what they did wrong to improve it. But like, again, whose job is that? <laughs> I don't know. Again, I think it's a really complex issue personally coming from my point of view. But anyway, that was not about blue. I did badly. That was not about... <laughs> Bad Tegan. 
Pantigan, <laughs> indeed. Um, okay, so I have another fact about Blue that was actually sent to me by my mother, and it's talking about, and we've got, we've sort of discussed this before, and we just did kind of discuss this, the fact that Blue is not a very common colour in flowers. So... Um, one of the the reasons behind this is that blue pigments are sort of more expensive to make, so it takes a lot more energy to make them. So you need to have a good reason to make them, and um, the reason seems to be linked to what colors bees prefer. So there was a recent review in um, Frontiers in Plant Science. It came out in January this year. It's called Fragmentary Blue: Resolving the Rarity Paradox in Flower Colors, and this group of scientists actually went to one of these large um, plant trait databases that we've talked about before. It's called Try. And they did a kind of a simple look at how many different plants have blue flowers. They had 10,000 different plant species. And they also broke down those flowers into whether the plants were pollinated by animals or pollinated by other methods, like just from wind or self-pollinating. And they found that amongst the non-animal pollinated species none of those flowers were blue. Like, basically, unless you're trying to attract an animal, it's not worth your time to make blue pigments. It's too costly. Whereas amongst the animal, um, there was a lot more blue. It's still quite rare. So I think less than 10% of all flowers. Flowers are usually yellows, oranges, white is really common, green, even like I think brown was one of the colors. It's just, yeah. Um, But it seems that, bees like blue that's just a the the wavelength that blue is is basically something that they can see quite nicely and they discussed that it might be an advantage under different situations so for example if it's already quite stressful for the plant and they to make a flower and they really need to make sure they attract something um it might be beneficial to put a little bit more effort into that flower to make sure it gets pollinated. So they said like in a harsh environment or also if you're in like a highly competitive environment. So you've got like a lot of other flowering plants around you, which might also indicate that you're in a place with a lot of resources as far as nutrients, but you want to stand out amongst the crowds. This might also be a reason to drive plants to blue. But anyway, um, this is a review that's open access, so you guys can go and check it out. And there's also a comment on it on the conversation, so I'll link that too. Oh, really cool! Yeah, it's one of these also historically fascinating things, like how blue color also influenced us humans in our trade routes and in our way, like we we dealt with fabrics and so on. Um, so it's fun to read or to hear that it's also like in in plants this this special thing. Yeah, it's, it's good that you mentioned that because the conversation article and even like the abstract of the paper does mention how humans have this connection to the color blue. Um, and you know, they even discuss, you know, we have this link with skies and oceans, but also they have a historical discussion of how blue came up in the Renaissance painters work and, you know, in the Egyptian, like, like these blues on the mask of Tutankhamun and stuff like this. So yeah, I think both the paper and the the article are worth having a quick look at. Yeah. Uh, My last fact for today, which is also not really plant related, but more sort of meta scientific system related, just like the one before about the review process um, is about study where a study where researchers built um, uh, a model, like a model 
program a system with bots that mimic to be researchers. Um, 150 bots were in this oh, research, no. research system and then they give gave them sort of ways to do research and then ways to give them rewards for public uh, publishing their research. And if a, uh, if a bot was working on sort of the same data set but um, it was already published, then that meant that the bot didn't get to publish their own research. And so you had this sort of competition for being scooped or um, to... Yeah, for, to be the first one to to get your results published, and then they let that run through several generations, and then they could play with the parameters, um, and sort of, for example, give more rewards if you publish a paper or less rewards if you publish a paper, um, and that was very interesting because with this model they could um, see what happens to the scientific system within the constraints of their artificial setup um, when you change certain parameters for example they found out that when you have high rewards for a paper um, for publishing that makes the bots go faster in in the research and um, taking more shortcuts and having like less stable data sets like less the, the quality of their research suffers because mm -hmm. they they want to be rather quick and get the the paper instead of being good and having like a good like solid science scientific message um and so they saw that the bots were just doing more but but worse quality and the the inverse was true when they were lowering the rewards for publication um then the bots tended to have larger data sets that they were sort of submitting um as the research um results where is this paper? I think I've seen something similar recently. Um, that was like, I, re I read it on Science Magazine. Um, the paper was published in, let me see, in uh, Nature Human Behavior. Okay, is it by Tiokin et al? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay, yeah. There's, there's an interesting, so there's a blog post written by um, Leonid Tilkin, um, which we can also link to. And what I found quite interesting was the thing about negative results. I don't yeah. know if you saw that. Like, that's weird, right? Yeah, Did that's what I wanted to get to next. Like, this, okay. the, the cool thing with the system is that it could also then reward negative results. And it's something like, it's a, it's a constant talking point for anybody in science about like how problematic it is that we can't publish negative results. So we do a study we try to figure something out and it doesn't work or we find that something doesn't have an influence on something else and then we can't really publish that because um and we should we should mention why that's bad like there's two reasons firstly it's that scientists basically get like their career depends a lot on luck so if you do really good science but the result is not like something positive you don't get a career basically so that's one negative but it's a really big problem when you think about like the medical field so if there's two studies that look at whether vitamin c influences the growth of your toenails the one that shows that there is toenail growth is much more likely to get published than the one that shows that there was no effect simply because that's seen as more sexy and that can be really really dangerous if suddenly vitamin c can get sold because of toenail growth when in reality there was just as many studies that showed it had no effect. And then there's also just the, in general, the idea that um, when you don't publish negative results, then people uh, tend to repeat the experiments. Like other people do the same mistakes that you made and waste resources and waste time because they had no way of knowing that you tried that already and it didn't work. Um, mm -hmm. So that's also on a meta level, on just like a resource level, um, uh, a reason why that might be problematic. 
Um, but so yeah, now in this in this study, they could actually just give the robots the uh, the uh, way to publish negative results and get still still get the reward. And what happened in their model is that then the re the robots realize that it's much easier to get a negative result than to get a positive result. And the so the race realized. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm anthropomorphizing. But so they, they then rushed to do like very, very bad research, pretty much the worst kind of research, because they weren't even aiming to get positive results. They realized that if they get enough like bad data, they would still get the reward. Well, it's, it's basically the fact is that often to see a significant effect, you have to have like a higher enough, a high enough number of replicates repeats. You have to have enough power of your experiment to see that effect, unless it's a huge effect. Like it actually takes a lot of tries to get, To, to, to visualize that from a statistical point of view. And if you don't do enough st of those repeats, like if you don't have that power, you will see that there was no effect. Yeah. So if they could also publish the no effect, they just didn't bother doing the right power. They just didn't bother putting in the extra effort. Yeah. Lazy robots. <laughs> I mean, the question is now how much we can extrapolate from that. Does this invalidate the, the reasonings for publishing negative results or should does that mean that we shouldn't publish negative results uh, i don't know like it's an interesting additional data point in like the whole discussion i, mean, I think we just need to have strict rules about power like yeah. like actually doing power tests which yeah i mean i think biologists microbiologists we're not really trained in statistics very well right so i think that's <laughs> yes. that's part of the issue And there's also the idea of having like a much earlier start of the peer review process. So before you actually have the results that you sort of submit your your study design already to some sort of peer review um, so that... Yeah, registered, registered reports. You register that yeah. you will do a study before you have the results of what the study is. Yeah. And, that and then also the the experimental design itself should be reviewed, right? Like somebody should check that you are doing the right things before you do it. Yeah. So that you don't just like say, I'm going to study vitamin C and toenails, do like one experiment and then publish. Oh, it didn't work. Give me my paper, please. Um, but that you have to like show that you tried and then it didn't work like stuff like that so it's complicated but i found it very interesting to have like this 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 army of bot scientists that um like try to do research i don't even know how that works like on a computational level how do you measure the way they do research and, and so on um but yeah but i found it very interesting in terms of like systematic systemic changes and where they will push um push the the researchers My final fact of the day is an old paper, but it kind of links into Yoram's choice of picking a 2016 paper. This is also from 2016, so it's linking in with the retro theme of the day. And it's also about blue. So this is specifically about how some of my favorite plant types are blue. You might already know that I love begonias a lot. Mostly I love the ones that have the little spots on their leaves. Um, but many begonia plants also have iridescence. So they have this kind of shiny um, features and it's like a blue look when you kind of turn the, the leaves a little bit 
And there was some research back in Nature Plants in 2016 by um, Jacobs et al., which was looking at how the begonias basically get this blue iridescence, how they managed to do such an amazing, beautiful, wonderful thing. And it, it was already known, I think, that they have a certain type of chloroplasts that were labeled iridoplasts, which is just because they have iridescence. Um, but basically it comes down to the not an actual colored pigment, but a physical structure that reflects the light to give it this um, blue sheen. So we've talked about this a little bit before on the blog and I think also on the podcast that you can use structures to reflect light in a certain way to like prioritize certain wavelengths and that can give really bright colors. Um, and in this case, there's actually a very um, periodic, so like very arranged stacking of the, the thylakoid tissue itself, which sort of gives this bouncing of the waves at exactly the right um, mm-hmm. like wavelengths to kind of give this iridescency thing. So there's like a, a physical form thing. And ultimately, it seems that the iridescence is probably there to help the begonias grow in their habitats, which is in the understory of tropical rainforests. And, you know, they're growing under all these other plants. So basically, all of the light that is usable by those plants has already been used. Um, And having these specially designed and shaped uh, chloroplasts with the special thylakoids helps them capture light even in the crappy green wavelengths. So like, you know, the, the light that nobody really wants and also um, just like survive in low light conditions. So it makes them look pretty, which makes them desirable for us, but it's ultimately probably to help the plant survive in its habitat. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, again, it's like this kind of structured thing where it's like this highly ordered structures, which gives a, a look instead of an actual a dye or a pigment itself, which I think is, is a pretty cool topic also. Yeah, I always have to think of butterflies who, who do that yeah. very often. They like a lot of the colors on the leaves that you see are actually sort of physically made instead of sort of organic chemistry made. Um, they're made by these like nano or like microstructures that, that break the light in a certain way. So yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it's exactly that. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Do you have another fact or do we want... To, no, you said that it was your last one, right? So I don't have any... Have you got a cat thing? I have a cat fact, which is oh, not no. really a cat fact. No. It doesn't... Cat fact. <laughs> I found a story um, and I just found it adorable. It's about a 30-year-old, 33-year-old bat... Um, that, <laughs> that is at least sorry it's at least kind of close like you're only one letter off that's <laughs> yes, that's true. closer than we've been before let's be honest <laughs> i didn't even realize that but yeah you're absolutely right it's 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 a bad fact today um and the bad fact is about a 33 year old bat that um can't fly on its own anymore and lives in a in an animal shelter and they take it out once a day and hold it on their hand and like fly it through the facility like like carry it around and like in a way that it for the bat feels like it's flying so you see like it's flapping its wings but it doesn't have the strength or dexterity anymore to properly fly so they let it fly around and they fly to a bowl of fruit and they can like pick a couple like a a few bits of fruit and eat that and just pretend to be soaring through the air again although it's like too old to actually fly and i just found that very charming to see how this like very old bat is um 
yeah being being cared for and um still getting I mean, the experience of flying how much would i have to pay for the service <laughs> and you are carried around i don't like, know wouldn't that be so nice to like like be lying and somebody's kind of carrot and you're just like flapping your wings a little bit you get to have some fruit like i imagine it's good fruit too he probably gets rock melon or something like really juicy like tropical fruit none of this apple bull crap <laughs> Yeah, I imagine so. Um, it must be quite pleasant. Um, and like, he's probably just like, wee! he like, he's just, his heart is filled with joy, you know? It's been, yeah, it's been a while, Yoram. Like, I don't want to <laughs> pretend to be in a plane. Like, those people at the top of, like, did we talk about that at the top of this episode? I don't want to do that. I want to pretend I'm in, what is <laughs> a geriatric bat? <laughs> those yeah. are my 2021 life goals. <laughs> I'm actually (laughs) you can't see me but I'm actually like lying down on my bed at the moment and I'm imagining myself (laughs) as a bat yeah we're linking to a tweet that has the video and it's just like it's just very adorable how they the caretakers let it fly and and then it gets some cuddles in the end um I I find meditation really hard personally, but I urge you all to take a couple of minutes of your day today, tomorrow, in the next couple of weeks and just like every day spend a few minutes lying on your front or back and pretending to be a geriatric bat. Maybe get your your partner or your housemate to bring you some fruit. (laughs) Maybe they could fan you so you feel like there's like a breeze going past you as you fly through the air. Oh, that sounds so nice. I will try that tomorrow. So nice. I mean... Your child is pretty probably at a trainable age. Could he bring you fruit? But no, no I don't think so without big accidents. But uh, we we do have fruit plates from time to time as as, <laughs> as breakfast. So let's just have pa- a fruit Papa plate. Papa is a bat now. Papa is a bat. <laughs> Papa is Fledermouse. <laughs> like <laughs> bring Papa fruit. <laughs> Excellent. That's that's why you have children, Yoram. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, but I think with that, we're at the end of the show. You can follow us on all of the social media, please. On Twitter, you can sorry, talk I'm to me. <laughs> so you're still, still in, you're still a bat. That's fine, Tegan. It's fine. Be a bat. <laughs> be free. Be 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 old and be carried. Um, so yeah, on Twitter, you can talk to me. You can send us cool links and stuff that you find that's very much appreciated. Um, it does our homework, and also we we see what you are interested in and and see like some cool new things that we might uh, miss otherwise. So please send us stuff on Twitter. It's at Plants per Pets. You can talk to me. Yeah, but if you have the really cool links, you should send them to Facebook or Instagram so that my homework is done. And that's at Plants and Pipettes. We also have a website. It's called um, plantsandpipettes.com. We publish about one to two articles every week. Um, the last article, I wrote the last article, right? I should know what it's about. Ah, yeah. It's about a protein that helps plants to uh, be protected from UV radiation. And it all talks about like um, the spectral qualities of light, like light colors and how chlorophyll sends them and what that has to do with photosynthesis. So go check that out if you, if you want to know more. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a story about how sometimes modernization ruins our life. 
That's personally what I think it's about. Um, I want to also say we always love hearing your feedback and I want to give a big shout out to somebody who um, commented on the fact that in the last episode I said I am not a human person at all. (laughs) It's true, I'm not. I'm a bat. I think we've established that by now, but thank you very much for your kind message. It really made my day. So please always comment. Um, You can also tell us where we're wrong. That's that's fine. In a nice, gentle tone. Remember, Yoram said kindness is necessary. Yeah, be kind. And uh, especially when you comment about my English. Um, (laughs) Uh, It felt personal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, With with that, yes, the opening closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you for listening. Bye. Goodbye.